Hey, Rocky Greek family, thank you for joining me for another edition of our Equip course that we are going through the New Testament survey. We are walking through 15 keywords to the New Testament to help understand the message of the New Testament, not only so that we can know uh, Jesus better, but also that we can share him uh, in a complete and succinct way. So we have been going through the narrative of Scripture, and we have gone through now the life of Jesus and come down to this moment of crucifixion. So in this edition of the New Testament survey, it's like, how do we tackle the topic that is so known to us uh, for, for so long that many of us have heard this story since uh, as long as we can remember it. And sometimes we can almost get used to the story. I can remember one time being uh, in a foreign country where the first time they had ever heard the story of Jesus dying on the cross. And as we had walked through the story of Jesus and they had heard about this uh, man, they really fell in love with him. And when the, the moment hit where they learned that Judas had betrayed him and that the um, government, the spiritual leaders turned on him and crucified him, they were devastated by this. And so one, one downfall is that sometimes we've heard the story so much so we've almost grown accustomed to it. And so today, what I want to do is I want us to look at the issue of the crucifixion, not necessarily in a new light, but looking at some of the details that maybe help us understand the depth of what took place. While Jesus' death seemed like a shocking defeat to his followers, the crucifixion of Christ was God's plan all along. And by studying the context of the event, we can understand what Jesus truly accomplished. So while once again, you can imagine the shock and the awe of the disciples, and even though he had warned them repeatedly that this was coming forth, they never saw this coming. They never thought it actually would come to pass. And so when it did, they were shocked. They were overwhelmed. And yet this was God's plan from the very beginning, not even God's plan once Jesus came to the earth. This was God's plan from the, before the foundation of the world. So let's study the context of the event. We can understand what truly accomplished. To show you that this was God's plan along, I want to reveal, uh, show something to you that some of you know, maybe some of you may have learned this for the first time, but the issue of fulfilled prophecies. And I want to remind everybody, whether you're watching this uh, online on uh, the church's website or uh, my blog, or you're listening to it on our podcast, I do have a handout that you can download either at rockycreek.church or travisagnew.org, either at rockycreek.church or travisagnew.org. There's a handout with all this information on there, plus the other um, content from this survey. But let's look at these fulfilled prophecies. So if you were to tell, uh, ask someone, and, and I didn't show you where this came from, but said, who does this speak of? They have pierced my hands and feet. Well, you'd automatically say, well, of course, that has to be Jesus. Well, that was written in Psalm chapter 22, verse 16, hundreds of years before the time of Christ. And shockingly, even hundreds of years before the time that crucifixion had been invented. So here's this prophecy um, that actually Jesus saying the night uh, most likely, we, some people believe that he sang it at the Last Supper. He is um, he is quoting from this psalm uh, on the cross. But Psalm 22 is this messianic psalm, this psalm uh, predicting the crucifixion. And when the psalmist writes it, they have pierced my hands and feet. That's just an awkward phrase that no one used in those days because crucifixion hadn't even yet been invented. If you look at Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, they say they're mourning for whom they have pierced. Once again, Hundreds of years before the Romans ever introduced crucifixion, someone is talking about people who are going to be mourning for someone who has been pierced. Psalm 22, 16, 18, make sure you know it. it talks about the pierced hands and feet. It speaks of no broken bones. Now, why is that something significant? Because in the Passover lamb, when uh, the when um, 
Moses and the Israelites were rescued out of slavery. They were supposed to sacrifice a Passover lamb, but the deal was that no bones could be broken on this sacrifice. He needed to be perfect and blemish. And so normally in crucifixion, the bones had to be broken for someone to die. But when they came to Christ, as we'll see in a moment, his uh, he had already died and his bones did not need to be broken. The prophecy also includes that they would cast lots for clothing. Now, you can try to fulfill a whole lot of prophecies. How can you fulfill that when you're dying on a cross, that your hands are um, and feet are pierced, that uh, they're about to break your bones, but they don't have to break your bones, that somehow they're going to cast lots to see who gets your clothes that they've ripped off of you? That is very challenging to do, right? You can't do it unless you are God. Uh, Isaiah 53 verse 5 says he was pierced for our transgressions. Now unpacking this a little bit, not just that he was pierced, but the reason why he was actually pierced for transgressions, for sin that needed to be atoned for. Zechariah chapter 11 verse 13 says, I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Here's a prophecy of Judas Iscariot who the exact amount of money that he would take to betray Jesus and then to throwing it back in the house of the Lord uh, into a place called the potter's place because the people, uh, he was so overrun with guilt and the religious leaders didn't want to take the money back because it was blood money. So he just threw it at them, fulfilling this prophecy. Psalm 41 verse 9 says, Even my close friend in whom I have trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The, um, the illustration, or I guess the, the kind of a phrase there, lifting his heel against me, is an uh, illustration of how someone is betraying someone. They're turning against you. And he says, here's this prophecy of someone of someone, my close friend, whom I'm trusted. Well, Judas was trusted with the money. He was the treasurer of the entire uh, group of disciples that followed Jesus, who ate my bread. And what is Jesus doing at the Last Supper? He is breaking his bread and passing it to him. He is the one who's giving that bread out at the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. That person has betrayed and lifted his heel against me. All of these details were known beforehand. This None of this took Jesus by surprise. And so when we come to it, we see that all of these things, that this wasn't a shock. And so if it wasn't a shock, this means that the crucifixion was God's plan A all along. It says before the foundation of the world, God knew uh, who was his and how everything was going to be laid out throughout history. And so all of these things were going according to plan. And so even Jesus himself one time was told, Herod's looking for you. And he goes, you go tell that fox I'll be there in about three days. <laughs> I mean, who in the world says that? Like, I'm not ready to die yet. I'll be there in three days and I'll get to him. Um, this was God's plan all along. In fact, Hebrews 12, 2 says that Jesus looked to do the cross, but he looked at it with joy. So he knew it was coming and yet he continued to go forward because he knew what it would accomplish, the salvation uh, of those um, around the world throughout history. He calls to himself. And so what a beautiful thing that all these prophecies are fulfilled. These are just a few, but there are many more. One of the things I do want to look at is I want to look at what takes place because once again, you, you, you've heard the story of the crucifixion, but I want to dial back a few things because if you look at, as we've, we've looked throughout um, this New Testament survey, you have four people who report on his crucifixion that are contained in the Bible. Matthew, who was a Jewish tax collector. Mark, who was a Jewish companion of some of the biggest leaders in the church. Luke, who was a Gentile physician, so has a very keen eye for medical things. And John, who was a Jewish fisherman. 
Matthew and John were two of the original disciples. Mark was one of those extra disciples outside the inner circle of the 12. And Luke was a later follower of Jesus who was a Gentile and also a physician. So what's unique about these things is that all four of these men report different facts on the crucifixion. And they report it in such a way that they're not saying, oh, when this happened and the coroner took Jesus' body, here's the, the five things that they came up with. There are these clues that like a fisherman would say, or um, Peter, uh, another fisherman would say that would be reported to Mark or something like this. That honestly, like medi medicine at the time didn't even have kind of words necessarily for what was happening. But later on, medical experts would come in and say, um, hey, based on what that's saying, that probably means this was happening medically. So I can remember I was in college and I heard someone who uh, was a pre-med student go through the Gospels uh, and talk through all the context clues of things that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John wrote down that actually were not maybe intended to sort of say what was happening medically, but they help you see that this wasn't just some made-up story and tells you the excruciating uh, pain that Christ went through, and yet he went to it with joy because he wanted to redeem uh, you and I. And so let me walk through just some of these things that I learned as a college student that really helped me unpack just the brilliance of how God was inspiring these, these writers to write down certain things that they may not even have understood in their fullest context. And yet today, modern medicine unpacks and goes, oh, wow, this is what was actually happening in this moment. So let me run down some of them for you. First off, medical explanation, I'm going to go down to this thing called hematidrosis. Hematidrosis is a very rare condition when a human sweats blood, it usually accompanies a significant amount of stress. So what happens is the blood vessels are basically like bursting and blood's coming out. It gets into the sweat stream and comes out of the pores. This is a medical condition that happens uh, in very rare cases, but it is an extreme situation where someone looks like they're actually sweating blood because in theory they are, which makes things very interesting because when you see in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, it says, and being in agony, Jesus was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now, it's interesting, Luke's reporting this, so that the other ones will, will say different things, but Matthew, uh, Mark, Luke, and John, as they report different things, you got to understand that at this moment, Jesus is in the garden right before he's about to be arrested. Judas is on his way. He's asked three people to be with him to pray. He's asked Peter, James, John, that inner circle. Peter is a fisherman, James is a fisherman, John is a fisherman. They have not gone to med school. They don't know a whole lot of things. In fact, they kept falling asleep over there when Jesus had asked them to stay awake and praying. And what does he see? He, he look, they look over there, these three fishermen, and go, huh, that looks really weird. Jesus looks like he's sweating drops of blood over there. Now, once again, they don't have the word for hematidrosis. They don't know anything's going on. They just remember later on when they are telling this account, they're writing this down. Peter's telling this to Mark. John's writing it down. So as I was sharing it with Luke, you know, all these kind of things go, yeah, it was crazy that night. He asked Peter, James, and John, and we went up there with him. And honestly, he asked us to stay awake and, and pray. And we kept falling asleep. But then when we did, he, he woke us up one time. When he came up to us, it was like something was on him. And we looked and the, you know, as the, uh, it was dark, but we could see it. And it almost looked like he was literally sweating blood. And yet what this shows is Jesus was at such a significant amount of stress at this point that his body was experiencing hematidrosis and he was sweating blood. Why was that? Well, what was he praying in that moment? He said, Father, if there's any other way, now's the time to show me, but not 
my will, your will be done. What was Jesus so stressed out about? Well, it wasn't um, the confrontation with the Jews. It was not the abuse and um, punishment and torture from the Romans. What Jesus knew was coming. He, he said it in his prayers. God, if there, Father, if there's another way, but not my will, but yours be done. Pass this cup from me. The cup, whenever you speak of cup, in the Old Testament, and Phil, if you think about the New Testament and the book of Revelation, the cup always symbolized God's wrath being poured out on someone. It's because if, I, know, I know this is the plan all along, but the anguish of being separated from God, the anguish of, of, of literally being uh, someone who's absorbing the wrath of God on behalf of you and I, he knew what that meant. He knew how serious our sin was that had to be paid and dealt for, and he was overwhelmed to the point he goes if, if this cup could be passed right now there's another way now would be the opportune time to say but god i not what i want but what you want to be done i will be obedient even to the end if this is what it means and yet the weight of what was about to happen was so great that he actually sweat drops of blood if you look at the next medical explanation we see this that it's believed that he experienced hypovolemic shock which is an emergency condition in which severe blood and fluid loss make the heart unable to pump enough blood to the body. This type of shock can cause confusion, weakness, rapid breathing, and unconsciousness. We, we see evidence of this in Luke chapter 23, verse 26. It says, when they led Jesus away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. Now, why would they need to do that? Because Jesus had been flogged and beaten so severely, he had lost so much blood, it's believed that he was experiencing hypovolemic shock. The type of beating that Jesus received was something called uh, the cat of nine tails, or sometimes it would be called 40 minus one lashes. And why would they say 40 minus one? They believe that the type of lashing would take place, that 40 would kill a man. So they would get you right to the point of death and they would stop. All of that happened before Jesus even was crucified, put on the cross. So he was beaten, you know, obviously in just kind of the, the group of soldiers that were abusing him on the way up there. But when this takes place, he is tied to a piece of wood. They take these metal, they take these straps and one Roman soldier on the left, one on the right, he's tied to a post, and they take um, turns um, remove, taking this whip and, and, and striking the back of the prisoner, and in this case being Jesus, and on these little straps are things of metal and glass and shards of rocks, different things. And the, whole, the whole goal was that as they would launch into the back, it would pull off shards of skin, and then as soon as this one came, other soldier came and this one and his back and it just didn't stop uh, up to the point where they thought he was about to die so at this point his back is so exposed and is so bloody and is so uh, decimated that he's lost so much blood that it makes sense that it seems like Jesus continues to fall over just carrying the cross now Jesus was a carpenter um, and so he worked with wood he, he was not like some type of wimp of a man, and so he could have carried that cross to the place. He had been beaten so severely before he got there. Most of the prisoners didn't in, endure that type of beating before they got to the cross. Jesus had, and so he kept passing out because he had the blood and fluid loss. He, the heart couldn't make up for it, and so there is shock, there's confusion, there's weakness, there's rapid breathing, there's unconsciousness, and if you go look through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see evidence of the gospel writers attesting to that. And uh, while they wouldn't even have the term for it, um, the, the pain that he had endured even before crucifixion came place is just unthinkable. Um, 
I bring up this picture of the median nerve here, which is the major peripheral nerve of the upper limb, which can cause severe numbness, tingling, and pain. And I say this because a lot of times when we have pictures or think of, we think that Jesus put the, the nails uh, in the hand and, and there is a possibility, but most likely it was in the wrist is where it would because the, the Romans, the way they would crucify us, they didn't want someone to fall off and uh, someone could sort of come off from that place, but this locked in between bones is pretty secure. And um, imagine your funny bone when you hit it and how it doesn't feel too funny. That's uh, kind of in line with where that nerve is, but imagine a huge spike going through it. That's where the median nerve is, right there in the middle. And so it can cause severe numbness, tingling, and pain. And so crucifixion was actually taking a nail in that median nerve uh, and the other median nerve, and then obviously through the ankles that they would stack on together. Mark 15, 24, when it says they crucified him, the word crucified is, is the, uh, the actual event of nailing someone to the cross. So they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide which each man should take. I heard once from someone who said, if you know what the pain is like when you hit that median nerve of hitting your funny bone to nail to go through it, imagine that someone takes a wrench to take that nerve and begins to, to pinch it and twist it. That would be a good indication of how bad that felt just in that, that part of this. The next thing to look at is this word called excruciating. If you look at excruciating and then you think of crucifixion, you might notice something. The word actually, the, um, the etymology of the word, it means from the cross. There wasn't an adequate word to describe the pain of crucifixion. So basically the word excruciating in our linguistics comes from, they invented this new word because of how bad this pain was. This was a uh, unique and supreme form of torture and death. This was one of the most painful ways that history has ever recorded of a public execution. The way it was designed was to create intense um, suffering, pain, agony, and embarrassment. And so this word excruciating, excruciating crucifixion comes from those um, the, 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 the pain that associated with the cross, Mark 1531, the same way the chief priests also along with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. This is one of the things that's just remarkable about some of these sayings, but these scribes says, well, Jesus, you saved others. Why can't you save himself? That's the whole point of the gospel. He wasn't there to save himself. He was there to save us. That's the reason he would endure that. He could have saved himself, but that's not what the mission was. The mission was he came on a mission to save us and not himself. The next thing about asphyxiation and meaning without heartbeat or really it's a, a loss of pulse, A, no pulse, there's no pulse happening, is a condition of severe deficiency, a supply of oxygen to the body. And the reason I put this is this, I don't believe this is the way that Jesus died, but this is the way that most people on the cross would die because the whole, the whole um, way that you would um, die in most cases on the cross is that you're suspended there with the nails there through the median nerve of your wrist and then the nail on your uh, in between your ankles. And so you're collapsed. And when you collapse, your, your diaphragm kind of shuts down here, right? And, and you have to, eventually your, your air gets, your, your breathing gets labored. And eventually to get a really deep breath, you have to do something and you have to push up. And the only way you can push up is on the nail in your ankles and the nail in your wrist. And so you lift yourself up on those three points of intense pain just to get a breath. So with that, 
um, just breathing is so challenging and taxing to be able to say, uh, and cause you feel like what, what the, the torture almost feels like for what people said was, it was almost like you were, you were like drowning right there, right? Asphyxiation, like you're, you're, you're you can't breathe. And so you feel like you're drowning. So you gasp and you, and you do that. You're, you're, you're pulling on these points, three points of pain. But in addition, what Jesus had differently was that remember the state of what his back was like after the flogging. Um, his back was completely just torn a piece. And so every time to push up, he's having to push his back up against this probably not so well sanded piece of lumber every time just to breathe, mind you. Um, and so most people would die based on asphyxiation. And so that's why when the sun was going down and it was getting close to the Sabbath day, these Jewish people go, we can't work on these bodies on the Sabbath day. We have to speed up the crucifixion, we got to speed up the death. And how do they do that? Very simple. The context clues give us. They were going by and they were going to break the legs of the three guys on the cross. And so they, they get there because if you break the legs, you're no longer able to push up and get your diaphragm expanded where you can get a breath of air. So they come up and they, they break the legs of one thief. They break the legs of the next thief. But the problem is they get to Jesus and it says he was already dead. And so some people go, oh, did he died because, you know, he was just uh, not as tough. He had, ex he had experienced so much of a blood loss um, in contrast to these two guys who had simply been arrested and crucified that um, when they got to him, they didn't need to break his legs. He was already dead, which, once again, in an unbelievable of, uh, semblance of God's sovereignty, that the Passover lamb where on the week that Jesus was crucified is when they were celebrating the Passover, remembering the Passover lamb whose bones couldn't be broken. If the bones were broken, you couldn't use that lamb. Here they're about to break the lambs, uh, uh, break the, the uh, legs of the lamb of God, and they don't need to. Why? Because God had ordained it that way. Even in his death, he's sovereign. Uh, he is in control of every little bit. So while most people would have died of asphyxiation, not Jesus. What it seems like if you look at the context clues, something else took place. Uh, respiratory acidosis is what a modern medicine would call a condition that occurs when the lungs cannot remove all the carbon dioxide the body pr produces and causing the heart to beat more rapidly. So when there's been so much trauma to the body, the body is kind of, the heart is starting to beat more rapidly. And, and, and you, you, you know what it's like if you've, you've worked really hard or you've gone on a run and you can feel like your heart beating very rapidly uh, or, or something like that. Imagine something that's so beating so fast that you feel like, you know what, I feel like something's about to happen. That, that gives us a lot of, um, when you look in a moment, what some of the words that Jesus said, it's almost as if he knew his heart was getting to that place where it's pumping so fast. Uh, lungs are, can't remove all the carbon dioxide. It's causing the heart to beat more rapidly, trying to go into overkill, trying to get things to work right, that Jesus is aware I'm about to die. Like he can tell. And that's why some of his words were so he breathes one last time to get some of these words out to make sure they're heard because he knows his heart's about to stop. Uh, he can feel it. The, the heart, uh, the lungs and the heart are acting so sporadically and, and so over time to try to get working properly. It brings us to where a lot of modern medicine, if you look at what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John report, that they think Jesus didn't die from asphyxiation, but he had a cardiac arrest. It was a cessation of normal circulation of the blood due to failure of the heart to contract effectively. Jesus had a heart attack. Um, 
And in fact, one of the reasons that you kind of believe that this is taking place is what is John 19.34, it says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. So once again, here's John the fisherman saying, I was there at the cross and they took a spear just to make sure he was dead and punctured right by his heart to make sure. And this fisherman said, it was weird. It's like blood and water came out. Like who, why would he even say that? Why would it be reported? Because John the fisherman had no idea the significance of what he was saying. But what he was saying is very significant because of pericardial effusion, which is fluid around the heart. It's an abnormal accumulation of flux in the pericardial activity. What that means is when the heart is beating so rapidly, it's about to have a heart attack, fluid is kind of rushing to the heart around it to try to kind of solve some of the issues that sort of get things prepped and ready and, and, and kind of um, really work through itself. But what happens is, is that the fluid comes around the heart. And, and so when this guy, and, and then the heart attack happens, when he punctures it, blood comes out naturally, but also water does because there have been a lot of water collected because of what was happening to the heart. And so I, I say all this to say, look at just the remarkable things that Matthew, the tax collector, Mark, uh, the disciple, Luke, the physician, John, the fisherman, they walk down and they write these things out. And yet years and years later, modern medicine go, oh, we know exactly what was happening there. And we see this incredible, um, unbelievable amount of pain and agony and despair that Jesus went through. And yet he knew it going in. He, he could see it as clearly before it happened, as clearly as uh, when it was happening. He, he saw all of it and yet he still went forward. Why would he do that? Uh, because he, he loved you. Because he loved me. Because he, he wanted us not to have to bear the wrath of God for what our sins deserved. He came on a mission and he wasn't going to stop until he accomplished it. And so we look at the medical explanation to help us understand the depth of it. But there's also, when you look through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find there's something very interesting. We, we find seven recorded statements that Jesus said while he was on the cross. We have seven specifically. And I'm going to walk through these really quick because they tell us something I think about what Jesus was experiencing, but also where his heart was. Let me look, look at this first one here, the seven statements. The first one is this, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do in Luke 23, 34. As Jesus is on the cross and people are um, scoffing at him and criticizing him, throwing all types of insults at him, he calls out and says, Father, I'm asking that you forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And when I read it, I want to go, yes, they did know what they were doing. They knew exactly what they were doing. But Jesus, his heart is forgiveness in that moment, that even when he is experiencing um, a type of suffering that few in this world has ever experienced to the level of physical side, on the spiritual side, he is experiencing that no one else has ever experienced. He is still having others on his mind. He is calling out, Father, will you forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. Give them a chance, God, to hear the gospel, to be transformed. I'm doing this not to be angry at them. I'm doing this so that you will forgive them. It shows us the heart of Christ. The second statement here, it says, and he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise, Luke 23, 43. As Jesus was in uh, this cross and there's a thief on the right side and a thief on the left side, there are two men who deserve their own cross. One of the thief looks at, uh, thieves looks at Jesus and says, hey, we've heard the stories about you. You saved others. Why don't you 
come down off the cross and give me down while you're at it. The other guy says, are you, are you kidding me? Like you and I, we deserve this. He doesn't. And then he says, when you go into your kingdom, will you remember me? And Jesus says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in what? Paradise. So in this, this guy on the cross never had a chance to get baptized. He never walked an aisle. He never really had a long time to say a prayer. He never met with a pastor. He, he never uh, tithed. He never went on a mission trip. And I believe with everything within me, he is in heaven right now. I believe he was in heaven on that day. Jesus said, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Why? Because he believed the gospel. Listen to what the guy said. We deserve to be here. Jesus doesn't. Jesus remember me. Three things right there, right? So honestly, if you go all the way to, B to BBS, man, there's your ABCs right there. Admit I'm a sinner. Believe that Jesus is not. And I'm confessing that I believe that you can save me, right? And so in this, we, we see this beautiful picture of what's happening. And when Jesus is affirming, he's going, that, that's enough, son. That's all you needed right there, brother. You understood that you deserved a cross. You deserved God's wrath. You understand that Jesus did not deserve God's wrath. And you know Jesus has the way to heaven. That's it, folks. That's the gospel as clearly as anyone can make it. That, that thief, he, he nailed it. Jesus confirmed it. He says, you're going to be with me today in paradise. I promise you that. And what a wonderful picture of the gospel. It's not about what you do. It's about the faith that you have. Statement number three, um, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home, John 19, 26, and 27. Now, this is a remarkable statement because Jesus is literally dealing with redemption of mankind on his shoulders. He is absorbing the wrath of God, and he still has time to take care of his mom. This is a man's man. This is incredible. He looks at his mom, who's standing there at the foot of the cross. He looks at the disciple whom he loved, which is John the disciple, the, John the apostle, and he says, this from this point on, I want you to view John as if he is your son. John, from this point on, I'm asking you to view this woman as if she is your mother. And he took care of her at that point. Jesus was the oldest. Uh, apparently, his uh, adopted father, Joseph, had passed away. And Jesus says, out of all the people I trust in life to watch out for my mom, it's John. And uh, what a beautiful statement in this moment. He's still thinking of other people and still doing his job as a son. And I'm just telling you, if this is not a rebuke uh, and the stater for so many of us for how that we need to treat uh, our family members, this is such a beautiful, beautiful example. Statement number four says, in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is that my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. Also in Mark 15, 34. What is Jesus doing there? He is referring to Psalm 22, that is, a, that is a quote from Psalm 22, verse 1, and he is calling out and begging every Jewish person who knew that verse to go, huh, why are you singing Psalm 22 right now? And they could open up their scriptures and read through Psalm 22 and see probably the 18 specific references 
um, to Jesus's crucifixion prophesied hundreds of years beforehand. So he, in that moment, is revealing that what he's doing on the cross is that he is absorbing the wrath of God, that God is, it's as if he's feeling that God has forsaken him. Why? Because Jesus has become our substitute, walking down the path of God's wrath so that we don't have to go down to it. And he's experiencing what this means to be an enemy of God. And he's going, oh my, like what, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like, I can't handle this. But he's also cluing every keen listener around uh, the cross, making fun of him, going, oh, what did he say? Oh, that sounds like he's calling out for uh, Elijah. You think Elijah, you think he's going to come down? And he says it so that if someone's listening, they could realize. He's, he's quoting from Psalm 22, verse 1. Open it up. Read it. See what you find, because you will be shocked to see all that's taking place before your eyes. The next statement. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And this is in John 19, 28. Now, what does this statement show? You may say, well, this one doesn't really give any kind of major indication, but it really does. Because number one, it's showing that Jesus is human, but also it's showing us something even in a deeper context. See, he, he had refused the initial offering of the wine mixed with myrrh in Mark 15, 23. Wine mixed with myrrh would serve as a sedative for Jesus. Imagine this is the Tylenol, this is the Oxycontin, whatever, whatever it is. This is... Wine mixed with myrrh would be a pain relief for him. So when he had suffered the flogging that he suffered and he was crucified, someone as a courteous way offers him wine mixed with myrrh to say, look, we know you're going to die today, but maybe you're not going to have to feel all of it. And he refuses it. He says, get that away from me. Why? Because he wasn't going to shortchange this at all. He's absorbing the wrath of God. He's not going to soften the blow of what our sin cost him. And so he refuses it, but then later he received the sour wine to fulfill what Psalm 69 verse 21 says, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst, they have given me sour wine to drink. So he's, he's fulfilling a prophecy. So, so you have two options here. You got wine that's mixed with myrrh. It's going to make the pain go away, or you got sour wine. that doesn't sound too good at all. And so he, refuses this one that would help him. He takes the one that would taste nasty, but for two purposes, to fulfill the prophecy, and then number two, all he needed because of all the stuff that's happening with all the blood loss, with all the fluid loss, his voice is parched. His lungs and his heart, are there, it just, it's, his voice is completely parched. And he's got a huge crowd around mocking him, ridiculing him, and he needs to wet the whistle one last time to be able to triumphantly, boldly pronounce something over all the crowd so that all may hear it. And so he says, I thirst, and they give him some of that sour wine, and he gets it down, and then all of a sudden he comes out with the next statement. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit in John 1930. The three greatest words I've ever heard in my life. The English translation there, it is finished. Jesus needed to wet that whistle so that everyone could hear this. I have finished what I've come to do. I have taken on and I have experienced the punishment of God's wrath that we deserved. The job is done. Believer, you don't have to work your way to heaven. Why? Because it is finished. You don't have to earn the love of God. Why? It is finished. You don't have to pay God back for all of your mistakes. Why? Because it is 
finished. In this scripture, he is teaching us that it is finished. He was done. He accomplished what he set out to do. As John reports that, Luke 23, 46 also says he calls up a loud voice in his last words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last, even to his dying breath. He is calling out to God and saying, wanting everybody to know, I commit my spirit to you. I trust you even into this last moment. And so with this, we see through all of these things how Christ would go to this place of crucifixion. And I remind everyone here, um, whether you're listening online, um, if you're listening to podcasts, or you're watching through video, or however, however you're doing this, I want you to know it's one thing to suffer um, involuntarily, suffer surprisingly, but to suffer willfully, completely aware of what you're getting into is a special kind of love. And I'm just saying that we know how to love because God's love for us and Christ came and it says that God in Isaiah 53 says that God was pleased to crush Christ. Why would he do that? Well, John 3.16 tells us because God so loved the world um, that he gave his son for us. And so um, I, I pray that maybe today as you've listened to this, maybe this is shaking the cobwebs off of your heart just a little bit. Um, you may have a lot of things going wrong in your life right now, but Jesus loved you to the point of taking your place on the cross and, and let's thank him for it. So Jesus, we do come to you now and we just want to say thank you for the cross. We want to thank you that you would endure what you did not deserve um, for uh, people that did deserve pain. We did deserve wrath and yet you stepped into our place. And God, we thank you for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for writing down these details to help us understand the depth of what happened, but also your heart and what you would share while you were on the cross. And so God, thank you for the fact that you came uh, to forgive us for our sins, that you would go to the cross to to pay for them. And so Jesus, I pray that as we, we think and reflect upon you, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, that we would follow you, that we would give of our lives. Um, to be able to, in an act of gratitude, not to repay, but just to say thank you for the cross. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.